Uh, Carolyn, you've gone so deep into this data, found out so many interesting things. Does this data give us any hope for this moment that we're in? Obviously, at some point, that pandemic ended. Do you, do you mm-hmm. see something that you can point to as this could also happen for us? Yeah, I, I think that that point that you just made is is one of the, the p- things that gives people a lot of hope that it does end, right? It, it has an end. Carolyn Orban has been studying the flu pandemic of 1918 in Missouri, and she brought her observations and even a little tidbit of good news to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Laura Hamden, producer for St. Louis on the Air. Before today's episode, I want to take a moment to say thank you for listening. Our team works hard to provide nuance on the news that shapes your life and your community. We wouldn't be able to do this without your support. The money you give to St. Louis Public Radio helps fund our podcast. Please go to stlpr.org donate and give an amount that works for you. Your contribution, along with that of your neighbors, is what fuels St. Louis on the air. We're really grateful. Thank you for your support. I'm Sarah Fenske. This is St. Louis on the Air. The Halloween we're about to celebrate in St. Louis has a lot in common with the Halloween of 1918. In that year, the St. Louis City Health Commissioner canceled Halloween. No parties, no football games. And the reason, of course, was the flu. Joining me today to talk about it is Carolyn Orban. She's an associate teaching professor in the Department of Health Sciences at the University of Missouri-Columbia. Carolyn, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you so much for having me. So give us a little context here. How bad was the flu pandemic by the time we got to October in the year 1918? Yeah, Yeah, so October and September, October, November were the second wave of the flu. Yeah, you may know the 1918 flu has three recognized waves um, where the cases increased and deaths increased. The first of those waves happened in the spring, um, and the second of those waves happened in the fall, and then third happened over the winter. So October was really the kind of the middle of the third, uh, the second wave, excuse me. And in Missouri, it was the time where you had the highest mortality from the flu. Hmm. So the second wave ended up being the worst as far as Missouri mm-hmm. went? Yeah, yeah, it appears so. Um, I've been collecting some data from Missouri death records, and it appears that the peak was um, over 900 deaths in one week across the state. Wow. So am I right in thinking that is more than what we're seeing right now from the coronavirus? This, This was a pretty high death toll. Yeah, yes. Also, you have to know that the the population was smaller. So the population was, I can't remember off the top of my head, but maybe half of what it is now. So the rate was higher. Um, The the mortality from 1918 flu, the the mortality rate was higher than we are currently experiencing coronavirus. um, And it was significantly higher than a normal flu. Hmm. So a lot of people were experiencing death within their circles, friend circles, Mm -hmm. family circles. Was St. Louis City unique from what you can tell in announcing? that Halloween had to be canceled. No, not at all. There were um, restrictions all over the state. I've been looking at some newspapers. The um, State Historical Society and the Library of Congress have some fantastic resources in terms of newspapers from that period. You can actually go and read them. Hmm. Um, So everywhere from Taney County to Macon to Laclede to St. Joseph, there were restrictions on the kinds of activities you could do around Halloween. So for St. Louis City, um, saying it was canceled, um, does that mean everything was off. People couldn't even go door-to-door trick-or-treating. 
Right. So th- this is one question that I actually have about um, whether or not trick-or-treating was something that was common at that point. Mm. From what I've seen in the newspapers, and I've, like I said, I've, I've surveyed a bunch of newspapers here from all over the state, people didn't typically talk about trick-or-treating very much as part of Halloween. Uh, it appears that people were really more about having parties in their homes mm. or maybe even the pranks that the younger people were involved in. So... I'm not sure that trick-or-treating was an established tradition in American culture at that time, or if it was, it was it was kind of flying under the radar of the kinds of things that got reported in the newspaper. Okay. So in terms of these parties in people's homes, is this something mm-hmm. the health department was cracking down on, or were they focused on public-facing events? Yeah, there's some variation in how the restrictions got reported in the newspaper, right? Everything from, I have an example from Marshfield where it says the State Board of Health has forbidden Halloween parties, Hmm. but other newspapers report uh, forbidding public gatherings. And so I think there maybe was a little bit of confusion about what exactly was allowed, people having parties in their homes, does that count as a public gathering? And so I think people thought they were doing the right thing, right? You would hopefully, if you, you wouldn't put it in the newspaper that you, in the society column, that you had a Halloween party if you thought you were breaking the rules. And you did see these. People were putting oh, this yeah. in, in the society column? Oh, yeah. They described, you know, having bonfires. Um, here's one from La Plata, a Halloween masquerade party given at the home of Miss Nellie Minor last Thursday. A large crowd was present and all went masked. Delicious refreshments served in a good time by all. Now, do you know when they're referring to masks, are they referring mm-hmm. to masks for a costume or masks to stop the, the, the spread of the flu? Yeah, that is a great question. I am not sure. I I kind of think that it means the masks for the flu. Um, in some cases, it's a little hard to tell. Um, the University of Missouri published something, the Evening Missourian, uh, October 31st. They had just reopened classes uh, maybe a week or two earlier, mm. and they had a mask mandate for students. So they had been off of classes for about a month. Um, and they, so they opened and had a mask mandate for all the university students. And then in the Evening Missourian was published, the University of Missouri in generations to come will go the honor of being the first school to order the celebration of All Saints Eve by the wearing of masks. So I'm assuming that means flu masks. That's interesting. And and boy, thinking about these parties being written up in the society columns, I just can't mm-hmm. help but think of Kim Kardashian putting these photos on Twitter of herself, mm-hmm. uh, you know, partying in this island with all her closest friends and family and, and some backlash that greeted that. Some people right. may, you know, maybe technically following the letter of the law, but mm-hmm. the people are upset about it. What do you know about resident attitudes towards mm-hmm. the public health measures during that time? Yeah, um, I think they were pretty um, widely varying, right? So mm-hmm. I've been looking also, in addition to newspapers, I've also been looking at letters, uh, collections of letters held by the Historical Society. And people are kind of all negotiating with the pandemic in general over <laughs> the, the course of that fall in their own ways. Some people express a lot more fear about getting sick. Some people... Um, are more concerned about people that they know or the soldiers overseas because this is all happening in the context of World War One. Mm-hmm. I do have a letter from a young woman in Aurora, uh, Missouri, which is down in the southwest part of the state, and she desperately wanted to have a Halloween party, and her mother told her to... Um, go and ask the authorities in town. And so she said, I went down with the girls. We asked Dr. Stevenson if we could have our party. And he said to go basically ask the sheriff in the town and come back. So they went to ask the sheriff and he said, go ask the doc. So we went back to ask the doc and the doc said no. Well, there was to be other parties in town and they didn't ask. So we went right ahead on with our plans. (laughs) 
<laughs> and then the rest of her letter, it's a letter to her brother. She describes all the decorations and the dancing and what her costume was like and all of that. Wow. So she did not get the answer she wanted, uh, but mm-hmm. found a way to still get to what she wanted, um, ignoring yes. that doctor's advice. Boy, I got to yeah. say, just hearing you describe this, it, it feels a lot like 2020. Did you have that feeling as, as you've been doing that research? Yeah, absolutely. It really does. And, and I've been working on this project since 19, or excuse me, not 1918, clearly, 2018. <laughs> I started with a student um, collecting the 1918 flu data from the state at that time as part of a, a McNair research project. And so um, I've been collecting these data for a long time. We've looked at almost 85,000 death records wow. um, for the state. We're in about 22, just over 22,000 of them are people who died of the flu or associated diseases. So I've really learned a lot about the state, but it has been kind of living in a flat time where you read about mask mandates, you read about closures, school closures and and, um, school reopenings and people's discussion about feeling upset that their church services are are being closed temporarily or, you know, all those things are just echoing uh, over the century. And and how amazing that you got into this even before the coronavirus was was something that we realized was coming. I mean, such terrific timing. Is there something in particular that that led you to start looking at uh, what was happening in 1918? Yeah, so um, I'm a medical anthropologist by training, and I've always been interested in infectious disease. Um, I actually did my doctorate at the University of Missouri here, where I'm teaching now, under a woman named Lisa Satinspiel, who has been studying the 1918 flu for, I think, 20 years or more. Hmm. Um, She's not been looking in Missouri, though. She's been looking in other places. And so when it came time to um, find a research project with the student as, you know, in my role as a faculty member, um, I thought this might be something really interesting to do here. And we are very fortunate in this state to have the open records. So you can actually look at the death records individually and identify which people died of the flu and and kind of create that database and do this project. Well, this is amazing. And, and what a good trove. And for those who are listening, I want to let them know I'm, li- I'm talking today to Carolyn Orban. She's an associate teaching professor in the Department of Health Sciences at the University of Missouri, Columbia, just done some fascinating research into the 1918 flu pandemic. And uh, Carolyn, you've gone so deep into this data, found out so many interesting things. Does does this data give us any hope for this moment that we're in? Obviously, at some point, that pandemic ended. Do you do you mm-hmm. see something that you can point to as this could also happen for us? Yeah, I, I think that that point that you just made is is one of the the p- things that gives people a lot of hope that it does end. Right, it it has an end. Um, it's inside at some point. So I think the other thing that that really resonates about this pandemic is, you know, that it feels very familiar, that we're still Americans, America's still here. Many of these towns are still here. So some some of these newspapers are still here, Mm -hmm. right? So the whole world didn't collapse um, after this pandemic. And so I think that gives us some hope. I do want to caution not to use this as too much of a direct narrative. Mm-hmm. You know, I've heard people talking about coronavirus waves and things like that. It's a different disease. It affects different, you know, age people, aged people differently. Um, the 1918 flu had a particular age mortality profile that was unique and that is very different from coronavirus. So I think the bigger pictures are about some of the public health efforts and what we can do, you know, to stop this kind of disease. I think we should be a little bit more careful when we try to draw direct parallels to things like mortality rates or timing. You make a great point there, and I appreciate you pointing that out. And it did make me wonder, we talked about people being masked up. Did we see back in 1918 the sort of protests people taking to the streets um, to try to stop some of these measures? Um, so in, in the research that I've done, the historical side of the project, I've been mostly focusing on these kind of rural Missouri places, and I have not seen that kind of organized um 
uh, resistance that you've seen, even with the 1918 flu, um, anti-mask leagues and other places, I've not seen that, um, at least not reported in the newspapers or not being talked about in the letters that I've been reading. Hmm. Um, I, that doesn't mean it didn't happen, um, but not in the sources that I've seen so far. Okay. Um, I have seen kind of continual reminders to comply in the newspapers. So I'm assuming that that means that those reminders were needed, um, you know, but I think the, the fact is that a lot of these actions were couched in the patriotism around world war one. Hmm. The fact that we had kind of this patriotic duty, um, here in Colombia, the, the Missourian at the time was called the Evening Missourian, and they talked about the fact that if we had the outbreak here in town, it was affecting the ability of the draft to continue. Hmm. They actually had to pause the draft um, because so many people were getting sick. So kind of linking those things together became a way to get people to uh, kind of jump on board. Interesting. And, you know, something else I wanted to ask you about, since you have been spending so much time with these newspapers from 1918 and and also these primary sources, um, Halloween traditions in general. You mentioned that we don't know that trick-or-treating was a big thing back then. Um, What's your sense of how the holiday has changed in the past 100 years? Yeah, I think one of the things I see a lot of references to in the newspapers are the pranks. And maybe in some places, the pranks are still things that happen on Halloween. I don't see it quite as often these days. Halloween seems to be more of a children's holiday. Mm -hmm. Um, But back then, there's reports of, you know, um, reminder, it's Halloween, bring in your porch furniture. Otherwise, it could end up down the street kind of talk. (laughs) So I think taking things that are left outside and moving them around. Um, There was a story from almost the end of November let me see if I can find it, where uh, somebody had lifted a, a carriage or a car and put it in a city park here in the Cleed. Huh. Um, the party owning the, the automobile that, that was carried into the park on Halloween night, please remove it at once or we'll, or we'll take it to the dump. So it seems to be a lot more pranks and kind of um, bad behavior, breaking windows or those kinds of things as well. Interesting. So less of a children's holiday, maybe more of a teen holiday, a young adult holiday. I get the impression at least that was a bigger part of it than maybe now. I think at this point, people seem to kind of age out of trick-or-treating and maybe you have a private party and that seems to be what people do. I'm not sure that you have the kind of roving groups of young people um, you know, someone my age probably is happy about that. Maybe yeah. the teenagers are not. <laughs> I, I feel like back in the 80s, uh, when I was a child, there was still a bit of that. I remember there being a lot of vandalism on, on Halloween mm-hmm. night. But it's true. Mm-hmm. We just we don't hear about that so much. The kids are so well yeah. behaved today. Uh, yeah. Well, and also, just if I can point out, the newspapers were quite different in what they reported back, back then. It was a much more community-based reporting. So they would report on individual people visiting town, you know, people who would come home to visit their parents. <laughs> These individual parties were in the society columns. There, lots more detailed information about the people in the towns than you than you generally see today. Hmm. That sounds like it would be really fun to read, even if you didn't have a research project. Fascinating. Also, you're, I'm I'm kind of glad that the, you know I don't have that eye on me all the time as well. That's a good point. I mean, especially now when we're supposedly under restrictions, and some people have family members coming in. You see them trying to keep it off Facebook. Imagine mm-hmm. trying to keep it out of the newspaper. That's a, a mm-hmm. whole nother level. Um, one other thing I wanted to ask you about, as you mentioned, this was World War World War One was still going on at this point in 1918 that you're looking at. I understand mm-hmm. that affected some Halloween traditions. You don't have all the specifics, but but you found that some cities banned traditions that would have wasted food. Like, give us an example of that. Yeah, there was one example. Here it is from Saint Joseph, where they report that instead of doing the normal. Um, 
the normal tradition of pelting people's porches with corn, dried corn, which they said that, that the, the folks in the so-called pest society, which I'm assuming is pranksters. Uh-huh. Um, so instead of pelting people's porches with corn, the pest society used the white fluffy material found from cattails and piled those that up on people's porches. That sounds like kind of a nice switcheroo, the, the creepiness yeah, yeah. Of, of having the, <laughs> the, the whiteness yeah. as opposed to wasting corn. That's interesting. Yeah. Well, so we're yeah, and then I found a cu- I found a couple of cases where Halloween parties were actually held early because um, the soldiers were shipping off and they wanted to make sure to have one last party for them, hmm. which is charming, except in the context of um, potentially passing an infectious disease. Right. Let's hope that did not then end up right. infiltrating their their army bases. Yeah. Well, so looking ahead to this year, Halloween comes tomorrow. I know a lot of people are excited about it, and a lot of people Mm -hmm. are also laying really low. Do you think it's fair to say Halloween is canceled in 2020 um, as a comparison Mm -hmm. to what you found in 1918? Yeah, I I think one of the the most important things for us to remember is that these traditions and these rituals we have, that they meet a need for us as people. This is where me as the anthropologist comes out. Human societies all over the world Um, mark the passage of time and mark the passage of their lives through rituals and those rituals have specific meaning so Halloween is a way for us to kind of get into the mood for the winter season to come it's a way to kind of let out that nervous energy if you're thinking about the pranks right it Mm -hmm. lets off a little bit of steam and so I think it's I think trying to cancel it entirely is maybe not not the best thing to do, especially when you're talking about like government authorities trying to tell people just don't celebrate it at all. Mm-hmm. I think my perspective is generally to try to adapt it. What is the need that Halloween is serving and how can we do, how can we build a holiday in, in these conditions and this climate that will meet that need? And I, you know, I think that general perspective works for any holiday, whether it's our Thanksgiving get togethers or graduations or, you know, engagement parties or whatever it is. What is this actually doing? What's the point of this holiday? And how can we do that in a way that's safe considering the disease? We did hear from a listener. We asked if people had any creative ways they were dealing with this. Um, And David in South St. Louis County, he explained how his family has modified its traditions for this year. This year for Halloween, our family is not going trick-or-treating. The kids are dressed up in costumes and we'll have candy for them at our own home. Um, I am going to leave some candy bagged up in individual sandwich bags on our front porch in case anyone comes by our house to trick-or-treat. They can just pick up one of the little sandwich bags with candy in it and take it with them to go so they don't have to sort through a candy jar and so that we don't have to answer the door and interact with other people. And that, again, is David in South St. Louis County. So, Carolyn, there are ways you can sort of capture the essence of what we love about Halloween without having a party that's going to become a super spreading event. Yeah. Yeah. We have to think about what are the things that we like that are fun? Is it the dressing up? Is it the candy? Is it the bonfire? And how is there a way we can do that safe, safely? Well, we hope everybody's listening to that and, and finding ways to do that with the the stress on safety. But how interesting to learn about how they handled it back in 1918. And uh, Carolyn Orban, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah. Thank you for having me. If you learned something new from today's episode, consider leaving us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the easiest way to help people discover our show. We appreciate it. Thank you. So,
Support comes from Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to sustainable and sound conservation of the state's forests, which support more than 41,000 Missouri jobs, resulting in a $10 billion industry. Choosewood.com.